0: It's naive to make believe that you're right It's not bright Only fools go walking on thin ice Twice You and life can skip the strife And you'll both get along All it takes is simply saying you're wrong when you're wrong and everybody has the right to be wrong Good morning
1: and welcome to episode 826 of Effectively Wild the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com I'm Sam Miller along with Ben Lindbergh of 538 Hey Ben Hello In the second half of this show George will be talking to Rustin Dodd of the Kansas City Star uh, the really probably the best Royals beat writer at the Kansas City Star since Sam Mellinger, in my opinion. Controversial, perhaps. But we're joined by Sam himself. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Good. You uh, wrote the essay for this year's Baseball Perspectives Annual on the Royals. So that's what we're going to talk about. One of the things you mentioned, uh, in fact, the thing you led with was David Glass, the owner's uh, patience. With the team that took a long time obviously to find its way to the World Series And it's his patience with the general manager Dayton Moore And very few uh, GMs or even baseball people have probably seen their reputation Rehabilitated quite so much in the last few years as he was or as his has And I'm curious how close to losing that job you figure he was Toward the tail end of the Royals um, losing seasons
2: yeah, um, so David Glass is is kind of, um, I, I guess like a lot of owners, you know, very close to the cuff or whatever. Um, so it, it's hard to know for sure, but just kind of being around the team and, and going on feel, I, I think he was decently close, but I don't think it was ever like, you know, a stay of execution kind of thing. I, I don't think it was ever, you know, I'm going to do this in less. You know what I mean? Like I, I think that patience was wearing – certainly around 2010 when uh, they fired the manager. And um, there was kind of a, a bizarre happening around that. Um, when, when, you know, Dayton Moore took over in like June of 2006, and um, Buddy Bell uh, was the manager then, and, and he quit toward the end of the year. And, uh, or the end of the next year, I'm sorry. And um, when Dayton hired a new manager, he said, this is the most important decision I will ever make with the Kansas City Royals. And and he hired a guy named Trey Hillman, um, who actually at the time was was kind of a hot managerial candidate. The Yankees were said to be interested in him. He was um, in Japan uh, managing a uh, low-money team uh, that had won with pitching and defense, which was basically exactly what the Royals were trying to do. And uh, so the the hire was certainly outside the box. This trade had never, you know, coached manager played in the big leagues, but you know, they, they, they took a chance and, and it was a disaster. It was a disaster, like literally basically from the beginning, from the first spring training. And, um, Wait, wait, what,
1: what, what happened during the first spring training? How, what, how was it? I mean, how was it so obviously a disaster that quickly?
2: Well, I mean, <laughs> so the, you're going to think I'm making this up. I promise you this happened. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it was a home game. I think they were in surprise. And they were playing, you know, a Cactus League game. And, uh, they, they won the game on a, a walk-off hit by, uh, God, I can see his face. Ryan Sheely. Ryan Sheely hit this walk-off hit, um, that won the game. And, uh, you know, the team's excited, you know, in that, in that kind of like, we all know it's spring training kind of way, you know? And, uh, Trey reacted by, uh, hurting the players on the field like right around home plate and just laying into them, just lighting them up for like base running mistakes that they made and like weird things like that. As, as people confused fans are like leaving the stadium and looking like, what is going on? I mean, it was a complete like Bush league move and players said as much uh, to reporters afterward. And it was, and they literally like, I think it was like the first week of spring training games and he, I mean, he basically lost the team at that point, um, and, and the season was still a month away. Uh, and there, there was just, you know, there, there were more examples like that. But that's the most obvious and the first one, and, and kind of my, one of my favorite Trey Hillman stories. So, um, anyway, like Dayton thought a lot of Trey, and it was about 2000. So they lost, they kept losing, and you know, it wasn't all like. This is a whole different conversation we could have. I think the impact of managers are almost always overrated, but, um, cause they had just bad players, right? Like, I don't know how you win when, you know, you have no pitching and you have no defense, you have no real strength on your team. But, um, in, in, in May, late April, early May of 2010, it was kind of happening for trade. I was like, this is bad. The players are kind of quit on him. Um, he, you know, he's doing goofy things like, um, you know, finding guys that they're not catching pot flies with two hands, like things like that. And, um, but Dayton was very loyal. Trey and he basically said, I forgot his, his exact words, but I believe in Trey, I'm not going to fire him, you know, this is my guy. And then like a few days later, there's a press conference where Trey Hillman's fired. And so something happened there. I don't think that Dayton did a 180 in those two days. You know, I, th- I think it's pretty apparent that um, the owner uh, made a decision and and I would argue a smart decision. And so I think maybe there would be the closest. That Dayton came to be to being fired um, you know the next chance for him to be fired would have been 2012 uh, when they had a really disappointing season but I, I think I think it was close but I don't think it was ever like you know I'm, I'm there and I need to be talked out of it
0: so it seems like some combination of faith or loyalty or patience is a defining feature of this front office and this field staff and you could imagine that being something you could criticize if, you know, a few games had gone a, di- a different way over the last couple of years and the Royals hadn't made it as far as they did. But of course, they did make it that far and they have distinguished themselves as really one of the best postseason teams of all time, at least as close to that as you can get in, you know, a couple postseasons. That extends to Ned managerial style, which is sometimes criticized, but really doesn't like to pinch hit, doesn't like to make a lot of in-game moves and just kind of lets his players make their own decisions to a very surprising extent. So do you credit that for things like Alex Gordon staying around at a discount and maybe the team being able to keep its core together thus far and make it as deep into October as it has?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some nuance here. Um, you know, like some of it is the patience that they showed with Alex Gordon – um, was basically they didn't know what else to do. You know, like, I, they were bad enough that there was no reason to walk away from him. You know, especially he was the number two overall pick in the draft and, uh, you know, super talented guy. So, and, and they weren't good enough to just be like, well, can't use him anymore, I need to give somebody else a try. So th- they stuck with him, you know, kind of just, th- they didn't know what else to do. They, they did move him from third base. He came up as a third baseman. Um, and they moved him to left field, you know, which was kind of strange because uh, with when he was drafted, the Royals had a third baseman who was uh, Mark Tian was his name, uh, hilarious, like, awesome guy. Um, and he was actually, like, the the Royals player of the year the year before, but um, they moved him to right field to make room for Alex Gordon. So now, you know, three or four years later, Gordon has moved to left field in part just for the Royals to just screw it, you know, like, clear his mind, let's see if he can get out of this. And, and also a lot of it was that they had Mike Moustakas coming up through the system. So, you know, Gordon kind of kicked one guy out of third base and then uh, moved to make way for another one. So, you know, and the move to left field, if they were a better team, I do wonder if they would have traded him and try to get, you know, something in return. But there was no point, you know, they, they were just a bad team. So a bad team doesn't get rid of talented players, uh, you know, especially when they'd be uh, selling low like that. So th- there's a part where I think they got lucky a little bit, I, th- I think it's fair to say. But, um, you know, I think a lot of the other stuff, um, no, I, I, I do think that, that, that the patience paid off. And, you know, some of that is, is a lack of other options, but um, I, I do think a lot of it is just there's a, a deep conviction um, from these guys about, you know, the players that they believe in. And, you know, David Glass, like he went through, um, you know, he was kind of in charge of the team sort of like as the board, of, uh, he was the chairman of the board after you and Coffin died um, in, in the early nineties and he was kind of in charge of the team, but I think it's a little unfair to hang, that awful time completely on him because they were, you know, going by different priorities. But when he bought the team in 2000 to 2006, he was a terrible, terrible, terrible manager. I mean, he's just horrendous. I mean, everything from, you know, not spending to, you know, meddling. I mean, it was just like everything that you could do bad, he did. And then in 2006, he really did like a 180. And and he was, uh, I, so I think what I'm trying to say is like from 2000 to 2006, I think that those mistakes informed David Glass from 2006 to now that, that, you know, maybe there is no quick fix. And, you know, especially when we're starting with farm system and international and all these things that, you know, you're, you're planting seeds and, and nothing grows in a day. So I, I think that was part of it too, but they, they caught some lucky breaks along the way. There's no question, but um, you know, you can't find a single team that's ever won a championship. I don't think in any major sport without catching some lucky breaks.
0: And I think you've written about whether the Royals plan to zig where every other team was zagging or whether that just sort of happened or whether, you know, they valued the same things that they had valued previously and everyone else changed and they didn't, and it worked out in their favor. So, you know, whether it's defense or athleticism or contact hitting or all those sorts of things, do you think that that was a conscious decision on their part a few years ago that they sat down and said, teams are not prioritizing this stuff and, we think we can get undervalued players, or is it just sort of a philosophy that they had that serendipitously worked
2: out? I think it was. It, it's a little bit of a combination, but I think it's a little bit more of the latter. Like when um, when, when when Dayton took over, the first move that he made, um, and now I can't remember who they traded away. Um, it, it was a relief pitcher. Um, I forgot his name. He turned out to be a good player. Turned out to be a really bad trade for the Royals. Um, J.P. Howell, uh, who had some good years with the Rays, and and they traded him to Tampa uh, for Joey Gathright, who you know turned out to be kind of nothing except he could jump over cars and put videos of it on YouTube, which was awesome. Right. But as a baseball player, he was less than awesome. And but I do think I, I remember that trade is kind of symbolic because. Um, you know, the Royals couldn't play defense and they were slow and they played in this enormous ballpark. And, you know, Dayton did, you know, sort of identify that as, as something that needed to change. If we're going to win games uh, in this big ballpark, especially with how expensive power hitting is, you know, let's sacrifice that and get some speed. That's something that we can, you know, that is generally cheaper. Um, it is a, you know, to use the, use the term, the undervalued asset. Um, so I, I do think that they planned some of that. I, I think that so I, I I agree with the, like the defense the the bullpen the the stocking of relief pitching power arms uh, was a little bit of a combination of of luck and plan because um, you know it, it had always been starting pitching you know like Dayton said so many times that people in Kansas City got really tired of it that you know the um, the currency of the game, the starting pitching, and he wanted to, you know, he came from Atlanta um, where they had all those, you know, the Hall of Fame starters, and that's kind of what he wanted to do. But they just could never get it going. They they could not develop a starting pitcher. I mean, Zach Greinke was – uh, you know, had that fabulous year in 2009, but he was already in the system. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, most of you pitching prospects, you know, just break. It's, it's what happens with them. Uh, but they had a really hard time with that. But they did, they were able to stock a lot of uh, bullpen arms, just sort of a, a backup plan. The part that I think is total luck and that, you know, is kind of like a media, like hashtag narrative part, is the putting the ball in play thing, that that was like this, you know, genius Saying that the Royals plan to do, I don't, I don't believe that at all. I do think that they got lucky with that, but it does go along with, you know, the speed. If you've got, if you've got guys that that put the ball in play and are fast, you know that that can that can be a help. So anyway, like defense, I think they totally identified uh bullpen i think was a little bit of a luck but you know kind of a backup plan that they you know and and later on they did focus on making that a strength and then the you know the whole last in the league and strikeouts um thing you know i think was a, a lot of luck
1: it is sort of fun to imagine how much different we would talk about this team if they had won the world series but like say two years ago wade davis had been a slightly better starter and was still kicking around as like their fourth starter instead of the greatest reliever we've ever seen. Because then they have like, it's a pretty good bullpen, but you don't remember it.
2: Like when they made that trade in Kansas City, it was the Will Myers trade. Because, you know, like Royals fans, like when you have a crap team and a good farm system, you fall in love with these prospects. It was the Will Myers trade and people were pissed. They trade away Will Myers. And then James Shields like had a pretty good you know, a couple of years. And then it was like, oh, well, now it's the James Shields trade. And then he goes off in free agency, and Wade Davis becomes this, like, robot, you know, alien release pitcher. And now it's, like, the Wade Davis trade. It just keeps evolving.
1: Now we just need Jake Odorizzi to win the Cy Young Award this year. <laughs> right. um, so I was on uh, Kansas City radio the other day talking about Pocota, and, and uh, somebody brought up uh, Ian Kennedy and, and specifically brought up Dave Island and said, well, you know, Pocota can't necessarily – Account for Dave Island What if Ian Kennedy comes in And Island works his magic And he's a better pitcher And we agree that that is, uh, that is true And I sometimes have a hard time Keeping track of which pitching coaches Are the geniuses of the moment But Island seems to have a, a good reputation And has uh, had definitely had unexpected success Recently with Volquez and, and Chris Young um, Does he have a, a notable style? Do I need to, to know about Dave Island? And, and if I do, what do I need to know about him?
2: Well, I mean... I don't know. I I like Dave. I I think he's good at his job. I I I think that he works hard. I think that he works with guys. Um, You know, he has a way of 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 telling guys. You know, sometimes hard truths, but you know, kind of in a way that that they accept and and understand that that he wants the best for them. You hear a lot of guys uh, speak very highly of him, and you know, even you know, privately, you know, sort of on background stuff, you never hear anybody really trash talking. So um, I, I do think he's, I, I've never seen like a power ranking of, of pitching coaches, right? But um, I would assume that he'd be one of the 10 best pitching coaches in baseball. He, do, he doesn't have like, like one set style, which I actually think is, is kind of his strength. I mean, there was, you know, he, he, I, I think what he does is he tries to find like one thing that he can help guys with. And, you know, like, for instance, um, Jeremy Guthrie, uh, who who they traded, uh, he was with Colorado and just getting bombed. And and the Royals traded uh, Jonathan Sanchez for him. It was like two – it was just like, I don't want this trash. You don't want your trash. Like, let's trade trash. And and Jeremy Guthrie came to the Royals. And Dave, a lot of Guthrie's problems in Colorado were, you know, the home road split thing. But some of it, too, was mechanical. And Dave saw – you know, uh, I guess this is an inside baseball podcast, right? We can talk about this. Like he he thought that Guthrie's pitches were coming out a little flat and, and there was like a little hip turn um, that, that he, that Jeremy did sometimes, but they've got him to exaggerate a little bit more um, that he thought would get of oh, just, a little bit more life a little bit more angle on his pitches and you know Guthrie had a a pretty good year or two he was terrible in in 2015 but whatever like he's an older pitcher and they already got the use out of him but you know that that's an example of Dave getting the best out of a guy um, you know, with Giordano Ventura and the, the, the results were mixed, but, you know, last year Dave just completely focused on body language with him in the second half of the year of, you know, don't be that punk. Don't, you know, pitch inside, but if you hit somebody, don't puff your chest out and, and walk halfway toward home plate and, like, taunt the guy. You know what I mean? There was just, he, he kind of figures on on one specific thing to work on with each guy. And it's a, it's an individualized approach, which I think is good for coaching of all levels, but certainly with big leaguers. So he's good, but he's not, I mean, let's not like exaggerate it, right? Like he's not, who's the guy with the Cardinals? Dave Duncan, you know, everybody um, said that he was just, you know, could turn anybody into a 20 game winner. I mean, I think that was a myth. I don't want to exaggerate too much. I do think Dave's good at his job, but the players should get the credit.
0: And do you think coaching and advanced scouting in general are notable edges for the Royals? It was really hard to tell last October when there were so many fawning stories written about the perceptiveness of the Royals advanced scouts and some of the things that they picked up really did seem impressive. Others were just, you know, Daniel Murphy is a bad fielder, which is like the basic, you know, thing that an advanced scout should know that, you know, anyone should know. So it was hard to tell. And of course, you know, for every impressive story from the Royals advanced scouts, maybe there's just as impressive a story from the opposing teams that didn't get told for whatever reason. So, is there yeah. any way to tell whether that's a really significant edge for them?
2: I, I think it's an edge, I guess. Like, but you're right like, because like the Royals won the World Series, so like that's you know they get the ultimate you know scoreboard, the ultimate yeah. success, and so whatever positive things you write about the World Series champion, it's like well, it's true they won the World Series. Uh, I, I, I when you talk about the the you know the, their analytics people, um, I, I think that's been a, a, a huge evolution. Um, with Dayton, like when, when he got to Kansas city, it was like, I mean, (laughs) he was a very much an old school, like scouts guy and, and he still has that, but he's done a much better job. I would kind of say in the last, like maybe four or five years of, of really, um, listening to analytics and, you know, the tie still goes to the scouts for sure. Uh, in the Royals front office, but you know Mike Groupman and and, and that group that the Royals have have become you know much more of a part of of what they do, both in in scouting um, amateur talent, um, you know potential uh, big league acquisitions, um, you know in advanced scouting, but the the coaching. And I guess this goes along with advanced cutting as well. Um, I I do think the Royals have a really good group. And um, I'll give you two examples specifically, and they both happen at big moments. Um, One was the wild card game from 2014. And it is hard to overstate how much John Lester had just crushed the Royal souls over so many years. Um, I mean, the Royals just could never, ever, ever hit this guy. I know he's a really good pitcher, but even by that standard, uh, his numbers against the Royals were just dominating. And that happened to be the guy that, um, that they were facing in that, you know, win winner go home uh, wildcard game. And, and, and that's how it had been lining up all September. The Royals knew it, and it was kind of like this, damn, you know, that's the guy we face. Uh, the Royals got a tip that John Lester – and, and it's, it's funny, like everybody knows this now, but nobody knew it at the time, that John Lester never threw to first base, that he just had this, like, thing, this, like, kind of mental block. And and the Royals got a tip that that's what was going on, and they exploited the dog out of it, and they ran it every time. And they did get a little lucky. The a starting catcher got hurt, uh, a thumb thing. He took a ball off a thumb. Um, the backup couldn't throw, so it was just like you know open season uh, on, on the base pads. And that I think that opened up this sort of like this guy is not invincible. We can get to him. And that was a that was a coaching point. That was um, you know something that they did. Uh, strategically that really opened something up. And, um, you know, if they lose that wild card game, I'm telling you, there's every chance that Ned Yost got, gets fired, you know, because that, that, you know, Dono Ventura saying in the sixth inning, you know, a lot of people would have, would the, the, the story would have been, you know, he can get him there, but they need somebody else to, to take him the rest of the way. The other part was in the World Series this past year. And you know the the Daniel Murphy thing, yeah, he's just a he's just bad at defense, and everybody knows that. Uh, but there was another minor little coaching point um, that David Wright, you know, couldn't really throw, and and he was making some sacrifices in his timing, uh, and things like that. And, and you you could you you could get an extra step on him. And and not just that, but the Mets first baseman. I'm terrible with names today for some reason. Who's the Mets first baseman?
0: Duda. Duda.
2: That's right. Duda Duda couldn't throw either. And so those were two guys that you could take advantage of. And so that ground ball, when when uh, you know Haas hits the double and then he's on third base, and that ground ball goes to David Wright. And um, when that ball goes to David Wright, usually the base runner goes back to the bag, right? But because of you know what they had told him in those advanced scouting meetings, Haas didn't do that. He kind of he froze a little bit, maybe took an extra step, half step, whatever. And as soon as he saw Wright committing to what was going to be a lollipop throw because his arm wasn't at full strength, you know, Haas took off. And he also knew that Duda couldn't throw, that his arm was, you know, average to below average in strength, but it was also inaccurate was the bigger problem. And he was there by, you know, a split second. And and maybe Haas would have done that anyway. He's kind of a, you know, reckless player. And I mean that in a good way, He's, you know, aggressive player, I guess I should say. But that was an advanced scouting thing that, that that they had seen and they knew that they could take advantage of it, um, you know, if they had the opportunity.
0: So I imagine there are some people hate listening to this podcast because of Pakota. Hi, everyone. Welcome. <laughs> um, do you think that the Royals will use projections as motivational fodder this year or is that only a, a one-year thing? I mean, I guess I've, I've heard, you know, teams that are favored from the start play the underdog card. It doesn't really seem like it has to be true. And, you know, this year, even if the projection systems aren't sold, even the people who produce the projection systems seem much more sold than the actual systems. But do you think that that will be a a rallying cry again for this team? Or once you win a World Series, is it just, you know, beneath your notice?
2: No, there's no question. Like, I mean, like all professional athletes do this, right? Like, I, I remember being... Uh, this is another story that you're going to think I'm making up, but I remember being at the 2012 uh, freaking Olympics with the Team USA basketball team. And when they won gold, you, they, they were like kind of all running through. And somebody was like, nobody thought we could do it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm really like the American basketball team is now playing this. It's like everybody does this. And, and it, it, it's a little bit of a harder sell, like you said, like after you win a World Series. But I think – to the Royals, they're like you know people still don't believe in us, and you know everybody thinks we're terrible, and it's it's a fluke and all that stuff and I mean that that's that's a lot of it, and you know, look like uh, athletes, a lot of them uh, other than the, just like the supremely talented you know the the absolute uh, the elite from the age of eight on, most of those guys, I think it takes a little bit of delusion to get this far, you know like you you have to have this like weird self-belief in the face of odds that are incredibly stacked against you. And so I I think that it's just kind of natural for guys to look for those things. And, and for, you know, the Royals have been lucky that, that, you know, Pakoda and you guys have been very open about this, like has a blind spot for, you know, what the Royals do very well. So it makes for uh, an absolutely easy talking point for the Royals, especially because the Royals are still, you know, I know, you know, they are better now than they used to be about, uh, numbers and things, um, but they are still very much a scouts organization. So, if the doubters that they can, you know, mock and 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 be motivated by, uh, come from you know computer projections, then all the better for them. You know what I mean?
1: If a win is worth seven million bucks, I wonder how much they would have paid us for this projection. Like if if we <laughs> if we'd threatened to release an eighty nine win projection, I wonder how much they would have paid us. I also wonder. I assume I assume that in the analytics offices that the uh, you know at coffin I assume that they have projections too and that they have projected win totals and I'm kind of curious what their secret projections are because I bet they're not that far off I mean projections generally have a blind spot toward the Royals
0: or half
2: yeah because I mean they just they're doing things differently and they're re- relying on you know things that, that teams haven't relied on to this extreme but that would be hilarious like if Poda like said that they were like 97 and a half wins was like the, the projection or whatever. Like, I wonder if Ned, you know, like w- would he okay, well maybe computers aren't all bad. You know what I mean? Like, uh, would, would he have to admit it? Or we used to be like, ah, they're just trying to set us up.
0: All right. So we will end with the Sam Ellinger projection. Can you give us your projected win total for the 2016 Royals? Uh,
2: Yeah. So like, can I, can I give a disclaimer that you're asking me this on a, uh, let's say Wednesday. And if you ask me this on Thursday, I might give you a different answer. Sure. Um, But uh, I I think they will be good. Nothing between uh, 81 and 99 would surprise me. But if I had to have like a, you know, if, if you're, if you're, Hold me to an over-under. I think I would say like 86, 87. Um, and maybe that sounds weird. They won 95 last year. They have mostly the same team back with some guys that, that maybe should be better. But I, I just, the, the track record of teams that, that win a World Series, um, you know, what they do the next year is just, um, it's, it's hard to ignore.
0: All right. Well, you can read Sam's coverage at the KC Star. You can find him on Twitter at Mellinger. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, and after the musical break, you will hear George Bissell talk to Rustin Dodd, the new Royals beat writer, also for The Star.
3: Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me to preview the 2016 Kansas City Royals is Rustin Dodd, He covers the team for the Kansas City Star. He's taking over for Andy McCullough, who now covers the Los Angeles Dodgers. You can follow Rustin on Twitter, at Rustin Dodd. Rustin, first of all, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. I know things are starting to heat up out there in Arizona. It's great to have you on the show.
4: No, well, thanks for having me, George. I appreciate it.
3: If you listen to this podcast, you're probably aware that Baseball Prospectus' Pocota Projection System forecasted the Royals for 72 wins last season. They won 95 games in their first World Series title since 1985. Pocota's projected the Royals to win just 76 games this season. As someone who covers this team, what were some of the biggest reasons why this team wildly exceeded their expected record last year? And what has to go right if they're going to do that once again in 2016?
4: Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a couple of things, um, at least last year, maybe just things that are more difficult to measure, like the defensive metrics or or how good the bullpen is. and I I think maybe it's it's more difficult to put numbers to those in in terms of um, where, you know, the projections might have missed it. But I think, you know, offensively, it's not too difficult to just look at the specific players that overachieved last year and say, okay, this is where some of those, some of those wins came from. I mean, Mike Gustakis had never really uh, broke out in his career as of, you know, as of before last year. And he had a his career year. Um, Lorenzo Cain had a career year, even though he was pretty good in t- 2014, but he had more power than he'd ever shown before. Eric Hosmer kind of stabilized and had another good year. And then there were, you know, Kendris Morales. I don't think anybody, I don't think the projection systems would have had him hitting, you know, 20 homers and driving in a hundred runs and uh, he was probably more than than what they thought they were going to get. So, offensively, I think if you just look up and down the lineup, you can see. If you look at their ages, you can hope. I think that if you're a Royals fan, that you know Mustakis and Hosmer and Kane can continue to pr- produce at that level. But I think just in in terms of what they did last year was was maybe a lot of. Uh, if you talk about overachieving, where the Royals got extra extra production. It
3: it seems like they really. Outperformed expectations and one of the reasons why you hear you heard this a lot late last season but it felt like they were a core that really gelled together clubhouse chemistry isn't is such an interesting variable because there's no real good way to measure it but it seemed like this was a core that all came together they developed at the same time at the major league level. And it felt like they had a confidence in big moments that someone was always going to come through when the pressure was on. Did it seem that way to you as someone covering the team late last year?
4: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, yeah, this is its sort of an intangible thing and it's impossible to measure. But I think the the general manager, Dayton Moore, has done um, a really, I mean, he he puts a lot of em- emphasis on who he brings in and, and what they're going to add to the clubhouse and what the What the chemistry factor is. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of it was, you know, guys getting older and spending time in the big leagues and finally just kind of finding their way. But, but I do think that there is something, even though it's not measurable, there is something to the, to the fact that the Royals had all those comeback wins in the playoffs and the way they were able to kind of perform in the clutch. Um, there's something about the makeup of the team. And, you know, this essentially was the core of this team. Came up through the minor leagues together and have played together for, you know, four to five, some even, you know, maybe this is their sixth year playing together, um, this year at, at different levels. And I think, you know, if, if nothing else, there's sort of, um, you know, I don't know how much that helps a team, but, um, it's a team that appears to fit together. I mean, they've got, you know, for instance, like a guy like Gerard Dyson, who's a fourth outfielder and a base dealer. You know, he's been playing with Eric Osmer and Mike Lusakis essentially since the minor leagues. And, you know, there's other examples of that, but, you know, he's a former 50th round pick who had Pinch ran in the ninth inning or not the ninth inning, but the last thing in the World Series stole a base and then scores to go ahead run. So I just, I feel like a lot of that chemistry is just the way the team was put together. I think that they're, they're a team with not a lot of flaws. I mean, they're, they're kind of, they can, Win games in different ways, even though they don't necessarily maybe have a strength aside from maybe the bullpen of the defense that really that really stands out.
3: Have you had a chance to talk to any of the Royals about Pacota's seventy six win forecast yet? And if so, what's been the general reaction within the organization or that clubhouse?
4: You know, I haven't talked to any players about it. General uh, Dean Moore discussed it a little bit and was essentially said, you know, he doesn't pay attention to that stuff. It's sort of meaningless and you know, basically depend on how well the players perform this year. But I do know that last year, I mean, they the players really did you know, I mean, professional athletes will use anything as motivation. So, you know, if it wasn't Dakota, it was it was gonna be something else, I suppose. But um they really did use that number seventy two as sort of a, a, a way to feel disrespected after they went to the World Series the year before. And I would guess that, you know, there'll be some who will essentially say they're not paying attention to it, they'll they you know, kind of laughing it off or whatever. But I would I would also bet that a lot of the guys on the team will use it as, a, as motivation, essentially. I mean, you know, um, like, like I kind of said, I feel like, you know, athletes are going to find mo- motivation wherever they can find it. And if after you win the World Series, somebody's saying you're going to win 76 games, whether or not they understand what the projection is or the, the formula or anything like that, I think they'll... They'll definitely uh, probably use it in some way.
3: Yeah, they keep that secret formula locked up somewhere. I don't, I don't have the keys or yeah. the combination to that. So, uh, but Paco is so much fun to talk about this time of the year, uh, and it's really been central in, in the Royals' run the last two years. Uh, but we have some current news to talk about. On the first day of spring training, the Royals handed out contract extensions to General Manager Dayton Moore and Manager Ned Yost. However, one of the glaring contract situations they have yet to address is that of catcher Salvador Perez. He's got three years of club options left on his deal, but over those three years, he's getting paid less than $15 million. Is the team actively pursuing a long-term extension with Perez, or at the very least looking to rework his existing deal this spring?
4: So there have been some some discussions between the two sides about uh, restructuring a deal or reworking it, um, and in fact, he's got three option years beyond this year. I mean, this is the last year of his four, uh, five-year deal that he signed before the 2012 season, uh, which was a five-year, $7 million deal, which, I mean, those those were some, you know, pre-arb years, but still, it's been a steal for the Royals. The problem is, is that Salvador Perez, if he plays through his current contract, will be 31 or thereabouts when this contract comes up. And, you know, the Royals, I think, would probably... Be be happy to maybe tack on a few extra years to the additional contract that that he has right now, and, and to guarantee him some more money. Um But I don't know that you know Salvador Perez's side wants to uh, agree to a contract where he's going to be signed through may, a catcher signed through age 33. I mean, I think if if Salvador Perez wants to do a deal now, he's going to want a you know a little bit longer longer deal, something that takes him maybe age 34, 35. Because I think. There may be some thinking that if, if he goes to free agency at 31, he'll, he'll still hypothetically or potentially be a pretty valuable player at that point and could, and, and could sign a, a good deal. So I, I just think there's, you know, the Royals as, as, you know, they're as much as they can afford to pay Alex Gordon 70 million over the next four years and they can sign Ian Kennedy for 70 million. I mean, they've got to be kind of cons, cost conscious about how they give out contracts. And if you've got a guy like Salvador Perez, sign through the next three years after this one at at that sort of market rate, I I just feel like part of the Royals I think is, is thinking, well, we signed this guy. Why, you know, he agreed to the deal. We've got him under contract. Why do we need to, you know, give him more money if it's if it's gonna hurt us in the long run? So I think, you know, both sides have discussed it in, in some capacity. I'm not sure how serious those talks have been, but I do think there's there's a lot of room that both sides are going to have to close or close the gap, I should say, and um, b- before they find something that both could agree to.
3: You touched on it a moment ago, but Alex Gordon is one of the most iconic Royals in, in the franchise's history now. And how important was it for the team to re-sign him this offseason? You mentioned it was $70 million, but uh, it feels like this is a move that they were comfortable making.
4: Yeah, I mean he he just turned 32, um so obviously he's on the other side of the kind of the aging curve and I think he's the type of player that's always taking care of his body um and so barring barring injuries I think he can be a productive player for the next couple of years. Um and and be you know if if not the Royals most valuable, you know, position player, you know, maybe in their top 3. Um but I think even from an just an intangible standpoint, his return, I mean, is just, is huge for not only the the city of Kansas City, but also just the franchise. I mean, he's essentially the team leader in the locker room. If you can be, if you can be a team leader and not really say a lot, I mean, he's sort of the silent leader that it, it, the younger group kind of looks to as sort of the, as the guy. So, I mean, I think he takes a lot of pressure off Eric Hosmer and um, and Mike Moustakis and Lorenzo Cain, Um And he's sort of kind of held up as kind of the the model Royal, you know, the guy that everybody looks to and, and should emulate. So I think he would have been a huge loss, not just, I mean, I think they could have, you know, if they would have went out and got something comparable, you know, I think they could have passed it together and maybe not been hurt, you know, this next year or the year after. But, um, I think that he basically, his return, although they did lose Ben Zobrist, but his return basically is the, the entire core is back from last year. Um and so I think you know, there's just a lot of confidence uh, that they'll be that they'll are in position to make another run.
3: Looking ahead to twenty sixteen, center fielder Lorenzo Kane, he was outstanding in the postseason back in twenty fourteen. He really built on that. Last year hit three oh seven with sixteen home runs and twenty eight steals and six hundred four plate appearances, all while playing gold glove caliber defense. According to baseball reference, he finished fourth in the American League in wins above replacement trailing only Mike Trout, Josh Donaldson, and Kevin Kiermeyer. Does it seem like nobody outside of Kansas City is talking about how good Lorenzo Kane is right now? He's a guy who's in the prime of his career.
4: Yeah, I, I think there's there's some of that. I mean he's you know, a lot of times people especially last year I think when, when the Royals were going through the playoff run, it was easy to kind of look at the Royals and say, Wow, you know, they're a team, you know, they're this team. They they don't really have any superstars, you know, they don't have any of the you know, these big name players but like Lorenzo Kane was essentially giving them superstar production last year for, for a lot of the year and then and ended up third in the MB, MVP voting. And he's, you know, I think he's, he's a little older than maybe people think because he's on the other side of 30 and was sort of, I mean, the classic Lorenzo Cain story, of course, is that he was late to baseball and didn't really start playing until his later years in high school. So, He's always been sort of a, a, a late bloomer, I suppose, and so I think if you're, you know, being optimistic on Kane, it's that, you know, everything he's done so far in, in getting incrementally or incrementally better is that it's going to continue at least for another year or two, and that he might even have, you know, a little bit more room to grow. Um, at least at least um won't be taking a step back from what he did last year. So I, mean, I do think there's you know there's an argument to be made for that. I mean I. He also he was he was so good last year just adding power to his kind of defense and his ability to beat out balls and you know, that's that's kind of another thing about Kane as well is that his if you're looking at it from the numbers perspective, his baby is always really high. So it's probably always he's always sort of a guy that people look to as saying, Oh, he got kinda of lucky last year but you know, if you watch him play every day, he's the sort of guy that beats out so many balls and gets so many sort of um sheet base hits that add to his average that you you kind of just expect it in a way. And so I think, you know, for the Royals, he may if he's not their most important player, he's probably in their top, you know, 3 or 4.
3: He's the type of superstar it's hard to appreciate him unless you're watching him day in and day out and just see how consistently good he is like you're talking about uh, just the little yeah. stuff day to day. The Royals offensive catalyst Alcides Escobar, how long can this team realistically continue to have him bat leadoff? Is that a topic of discussion for Ned Yost and the coaching staff?
4: I don't think it'll be a topic of discussion this spring, just because Ned Yost has said he's going to bat leadoff, and they, you know, they won the World Series like five months ago, so <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants it's hard to say, well, you know, like I don't think it'll be a topic of discussion.
3: I'm not going to question Ned Yost anymore. I've learned to stop doing that. It just yeah. it never works out. <laughs> You touched a little bit on Mike Moustakis at the top of our conversation, but it seemed like it was a really a, a tale of two halves for him last year. In the first half of the year, he hit 301, uh started spraying line drives all over the field, going the other way at a 44% ground ball rate. Then in the second half, he crushed 15 home runs, and his ground ball rate dropped all the way down to 35%. So my question is, which Mike Moustakis is showing up in Kansas City? this season? The guy who hit for average in the first part of the year or the guy who was uh, the fly ball heavy slugger down the stretch last year? Which Mike Moustakis are we going to see?
4: That's a good question. I mean, last year he started the season batting second. And and, and it would seem like at the time, it seems like such an odd Ned Yost type of move. Like why should Mike Moustakis with his, you know, on base percentage in the low 300s be batting second? And it turned out to be sort of a stroke of genius because he sort of reworked his swing and started going the other way and basically turned into a single sitter that was getting on base at a huge clip. Um But you yeah, like, you said, and then, and then that sort of, as much as the, the narrative discussion around Moustakis was that he kind of had this breakout season. He did sort of turn into the Moustakis of old last year, but the, the caveat being he, he had really good power. So, so it, it kind of covered up for, for the, the lower average and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's gonna be a discussion, but it it'll likely come down to Mustakis or Alex Gordon batting second for the Royals. And I would not be surprised if Mustakis started in that spot perhaps as a way to try to try to rekindle or recapture what he had last year, which was just kind of a low pressure, just get on base kind of approach. Um, go the other way, all that sort of stuff. So It'll be interesting to see if he can either combine some of kind of the the approach that he had at the beginning of last year, or the one at the end, or if he's able to to be the same productive player uh, when you put all the numbers together at the end.
3: Anytime a team wins a World Series, every baseball writer analyst out there tries to find the one signature of their success. And if you're looking at the Royals, the one thing that really stands out is the bullpen, the lights out bullpen with. Wade Davis, Kelvin Herrera, Greg Holland. Holland's gone now, and we could spend an hour talking about how great Wade Davis is. But the more intriguing storyline to me is the development of Kelvin Herrera. He added the slider to his deadly arsenal late last season. He struck out over 40% of the batters he faced in the playoffs, and that accompanied a 61% ground ball rate. What are the Royals' expectations for him this season how good is that slider that he added, and is he the sort of the key to this entire pitching staff to sort of bridge the gap between that rotation and Davis at the back end of the pen?
4: Yeah, I think he did add a slider, and that was that was interesting because it was he kind of surfaced late in the season. He had kind of gone through some kind of midseason struggles, um, and the numbers were were still strong, but he sort of when you're in the Royal bullpen, it feels like if you give up a run, it's like, wow, somebody gave up a run. So he, he just, you know, he went through, he went for a three or four weeks stretch where he just got knocked around a little bit and it was um kind of surprising, but then he added the slider, I think maybe kind of around quietly or added it around like late August or early September. And then, and then kind of caught fire in September and had a really good postseason. I do think that there's a possibility that, he could slot into the eighth inning guy and be basically be what Wade Davis was um before. I do think that they they have some other options. I mean they could they have Joaquin Soria, they signed him in the off season. Um and they also have Luke Hoachaber who did not have a great season last year, but he was coming off Tommy John last year and was better in the postseason as well. So I think if he, if he Luke Hoachaber could could kind of duplicate what he did in the twenty fourteen season, or I mean I guess it would have been that was the, the season you missed. So it would be the 2013 season. Then hmm. you have sort of another bullpen weapon, um, that you could slot in as a, either a seventh inning guy or an eighth inning guy. I think, you know, all things being equal, I think Herrera is the guy that you probably want in the highest leverage situations. Um, so maybe, but Ned Yost is also a manager who likes to sort of define roles. So, uh, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is I don't know that it's a guarantee that Herrera will be in the eighth inning, but that, I think the it, it's a possibility depending on kind of how he performs uh, during spring training and early in the year.
3: What's the plan for Danny Duffy? He was really good out of the bullpen in the playoffs. Uh, the fastball velocity really jumped. He seems like a guy who could make that transition from the rotation to the bullpen pretty successfully, but the Royals do have a need in that starting rotation. What's the plan in the organization for him this season?
4: Yeah, right now they've, they've sort of told him to be ready for anything and I think he's gonna spend time, I think he's gonna spend time in both the bullpen and the rotation this year. And I don't know who, where he's gonna start, but they've essentially got three guys for those last two rotation spots with Chris Medlin and Chris Young being the other two. They've got some other outside candidates like a Dylan G, but um those three, Duffy, Young, and Medlin, will probably take two of the final rotation spots. And Medlin's a guy that's Kid was coming off a second Tommy John surgery last season. Young is 36 and unlikely to throw, you know, more than 150 or 160 innings. Or that way, if he got that many innings, the Royals would probably be thrilled. So, I think those all three of those guys are going to start games this year. And I, I if, if I think Duffy has the highest ceiling of all three of those guys, he had in the ERA and, you know the, the mid 2s as recently as 2014. Although there might have been some luck in there, but. He's maybe the guy with the biggest upside and the most ceiling, and they project to be sort of a number three starter at the, the major league level. So if he can kind of be be what he was, I think the Royals would love to have him in the rotation. I just think that they are also the type of person that sees the value in a reliever and see how his stuff can translate, and that he could potentially be just another kind of force back there at the end of the bullpen.
3: The Royals gave up some pretty significant prospects last year in the Johnny Cueto and Ben Zobris deals, which is what you do when you're trying to win a World Series. Uh, but who are some of the prospects that are still left in the organization that they're looking to step up maybe in 2016 and beyond to really impact this team and try and keep this run going?
4: There's not of their high-ceiling prospects. There's there's not a lot that are that are close to the big league level. Um, some of them are at the lower levels, but there are there are two guys obviously. One is Raul Mondesi, who's never played in a regular season uh, Major League game, but he <laughs> debuted in the World Series last year with an at bat.
3: It's kind of cool. And he's
4: yeah, yeah. He's I mean, he's only twenty. He'll he'll be twenty one in July, so he's still still pretty young. And but I think he's a guy that projects as sort of the long term answer at shortstop when Alcides Escobar's is no longer with the team. And but I also think in the short term he projects as sort of a, a you know a, a Break if a glass of emergency at second base. Whether that means there's a couple injuries or Omar Infante doesn't do well, and then they don't get what they want from Christian Colon. I think he's sort of a, you know, come the midsummer if he's producing at the minor league level, that's a spot where he could find himself is is playing second base for the Royals. And then the other one player to watch would be Bubba Starling, who was their uh, number one pick in uh, 2011. Um, And, I mean, he's still only 23. He was a high school signee, but, um, you know, not young either. Um, But I, he, he's the type of guy who has a lot of issues with the bat and plays discipline, and he strikes out a ton. But his defense is major league ready. And I think at some point in 2016, uh Bubba's going to debut with the Royals. It's just a matter of whether that's in September or whether that's in you know, July or August, and he comes up for a little bit. I mean, he, he could definitely be of value as a, a defensive weapon and um, a, a good base runner and, and a guy that could maybe kind of get his feet wet um, at the big league level for a little bit this year.
3: That's the one thing the Royals don't need, another toolsy fourth outfielder type, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they've got a lot of them, and, you know, they've got they've got pretty good depth at the outfield spot as well, too. I mean, they've got guys that are kind of mid tier prospect type guys and like Brett Eibner and Jorge Bonifacio and those guys could be in the big leagues at some point this year too, but they just they sort of have a, a logjam jam of good outfielders that all kind of kind of can do the same kind of stuff. So um, you know, it's not good when you're playing in the same position as Alex Gore and Lorenzo Cain, I guess. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's true. I wish I had another hour or two to ask you about Terrence because 'cause I'm just fascinated by the guy. But What's going to be the biggest challenge the Royals are going to face this season? If they're going to repeat as World Series champions, what's going to be the biggest obstacle for them?
4: I think it's their starting rotation. And, I mean, th- that was this was a big question going into last year. Um, but they've got, with their bullpen, they can afford to, they've got a little bit of a security blanket with the with the rotation, but there's, you're still looking at counting on Jordano Ventura and Nansen Volquez and Ian Kennedy as your top three starters entering the year. And it, then then you've, then you've got to, like, lean on Chris Young and Chris Medlin and Danny Duffy. So, I mean, they've got the guys that can throw the innings and, and be productive, especially in front of the Royals' defense. Um, but you wonder if there's some injuries or some guys just have, you know, down years or, or whatever, you know, that they don't have the, the front line starting pitching. And it's sort of funny because as bad as Johnny Cueto was when the Royals acquired him last year, he also threw a shutout in the World Series and won Game 5 of the ALDS for them, you know, they they will need probably, I don't know if they, need is the right word, but if they're in position to make the playoffs again this year, you know, uh, Johnny Cueto's, you know, that type of pitcher, that type of rental would be exactly what this team would need. So I do think they will kind of, if they're in it again, it'll be interesting to see what they do with their rotation to sort of match up with teams in the playoffs.
3: My last question for you, Rustin, uh, I'm asking this, of everyone who comes on, but what's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with this team in 2016?
4: Oh, man, that's a good question. I I would say it might be Eric Hosmer. Um, You know, we we talked about Kane, but Hosmer is still only 26. He sort of emerged as kind of the face of the Royals um, and emerged as a clubhouse leader. And he's also, I mean, he's a guy that had superstar talent you know, and was up at the big leagues at age 21. And I still think that there is, is more, you know, more production or more kind of uh more in him. You know, I, I think he's a guy that could emerge this year as sort of uh kind of, it's not an MVP candidate because it's kind of when you're in the same league as Mike Trout and some of these other guys, it's, it's a little bit hard to say that, but is as a, as a, you know, as a legitimate all-star first baseman, I think he can, he can still get to that level. And it, It'll be interesting to see if you can sort of harness all the tools and gifts he has and and put it all together this year.
3: Rustin, thanks again for coming on the show. Enjoy the warm weather out in Arizona.
4: No, no problem. Thanks for having me.
3: So that's going to do it for our conversation with Rustin Dodd. You can check out his Royals coverage all season long in the Kansas City Star, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rustin Dodd. Now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up.
0: All right, that's it for the Royals preview. Thank you to Sam and Rustin for joining us. Kansas City Star has been very good to this podcast over the past few years. You can send us emails for our listener email show or just for fun at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can buy our book or at least pre-order our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it's the story of how Sam and I imposed ourselves on a real live baseball team with real live professional players last summer in Sonoma and tried to test out some of the theories that we've always had about baseball comes out may 3rd officially although if you order early you may get it a little bit early we just got the galleys yesterday and i can testify that it will be an actual book you can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on itunes and support our sponsor the play index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code bp to get the discounted price of thirty dollars on a one-year subscription we'll be back tomorrow with the preview for the milwaukee brewers